Hi, this is Caitlin McFarland. And this is Emily Gibson. And we're the co-executive directors of ATX Television Festival. And you're listening to the TV Campfire. This season, we'll be bringing you some of our favorite panels from past festivals, along with behind-the-scenes commentary and some of our fondest memories about putting it all together, while also giving you an inside look to what's happening with this year's virtual festival, which we're calling ATX TV From the Couch. It's like a flashback episode and a spoiler alert all rolled into one. So get back on the couch, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy talking TV together. It's another week, Emily. It is another week. What what week are we on? Do we have any idea? Um, I think I finally lost count. I was doing a pretty good job slash not really caring and as you know, because we've already talked about it, but yesterday I hit my quarantine wall and just all day was like, what's going to make me feel good? And there was no answer to any of the questions. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we're about to run out of Easter candy and that's obviously terrible. So I don't know what's going to be next after that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we're so well stocked in the booze and food. I ate two different types, well, actually three different types of pizza this weekend. You know, I saw that on your Insta story. Where all did you get pizza from? So we got it from two different places. We got Home Slice, which for those that don't know, is an Austin staple. And I wanted to support them. And it's just delicious. And Via 313 which has also become a little bit of an Austin stable, but a little bit more like food truck. I don't want to say trendy. It's been around long enough, but it is Detroit style pizza, which I was not familiar with until they came into our lives, which is a deeper dish pizza. But from Home Slice, we did half and half. I did mushrooms all over. I got eggplant on my side because they make a good eggplant. Their eggplant pizza is so good. It's so good. So I got that on my half and then Evan got like pepperoni and meatballs or something on his half. And then we went to Via 313 and he got the Detroiter, which the selling point there was it had smoked pepperoni under the cheese and a different type of pepperoni on top of the cheese. Two different types of pepperoni in a oh. very specific placement. And then I got the big dill pickle which I would never have gotten if we only got one pizza, but because I had the home slice and I knew that that was going to be good. I got this one, which had bacon and dill pickles and provolone cheese and dill ranch dressing. On the pizza? On the pizza. How was it? It was delightful. If I'm being honest, I would never have wanted it to be the only thing I was eating but we also got a growler of St. Arnold's beer from Craft Pride, which was the first time we'd done that, which is like a to-go beer because Via 313's truck is in their backyard. So we got beer and pizza and two different types of pizza. And then we watched The Leftovers, which the whole reason that Evan had the craving for pizza was because Kevin Garvey throughout the first season of The Leftovers, this is not a real spoiler because I don't imagine anyone to remember this, often leaves $20 for pizza for Jill, because he's leaving a lot. He's talked about pizza like twice, probably, but it felt like enough to plant the seed for a craving. There was enough tie-in that when you were trying to figure out what to eat while watching the leftovers, pizza seemed like a good idea. Right. 
And so the joke became, what was hilarious was we went and picked up all this pizza and the joke was like, just wait, Kevin, we're going to show you our pizza. Kevin's going to see us eat our pizza. And then the episode we watched, Kevin was not it. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny. (laughs) So it felt like a real letdown that Kevin didn't get to see our pizza. Imaginary TV Kevin couldn't see through to our TV. You guys are almost done with season two, right? You are just flying through. We're a little over halfway through season two. We slowed down a little bit, but we really bowled through season one because it's just a harder season. It's real. It can be very depressing and you need it for two and three. It's a comprehensive view in my opinion, but it is just a harder watch. And it has taken me a long time to get Evan to agree to watch The Leftovers And so I'm letting him set the speed and he really wanted to get through one. You're making me want to start rewatching it. However, I don't know where my mindset is and the fact that I started Schitt's Creek over for the third time this year last night, because that's where we are. It it is different. I will say Jen also was like, that's a heavy rewatch. And I thought it would be. My memory was that it was more depressing than it is. And there are certain, I mean, this kind of leads us into our kind of conversation today about like the current state of things, but like there are certain sort of references. I mean, think about it, like 2% of the population disappears and we're currently dealing with a pandemic and the confusion around that. And there's even things about like trying to get people to stay home. There's like a curfew that goes into effect in season one. And like, there's people like rioting sort of saying why you're going to make me stay home? Like, how dare you? What about my business? And it's just like, you're wow. Nora goes to a conference for the departure and there's people picketing outside saying the world health organization is to blame. I don't know if anybody's actually blaming them in this, but like the government did it. And so there's just these little things that weirdly is not making me sad as much as it's a little cathartic about like, how do we handle emotionally something so unknown and there's these two groups that are handling it very differently and like neither one of them is right or wrong although many people would say the guilty remnant is wrong but that was always my favorite part of the leftovers is that it was never about what happened it was never about what caused this I mean of course people are asking that question but the whole thing was much more about okay two percent of the population is gone so now now what do we do how do we handle it how do you keep going about your daily life without knowing the answers. And I think that there is something, even that we were talking about earlier, it's a, I can see day to day when I look too far in the future, it gets very overwhelming because we don't know when things are going to open back up. We don't know when things are going to be quote unquote normal again. So it's how do you exist and reconcile in your head the day to day that we're living at this moment without knowing what's going to happen in the future. And that's very interesting that those are so similar. Yeah. And season two is interesting. We're slowing down in it, but the whole reason that I also don't think this is a spoiler alert, but the whole reason that they go, if it is, by the way, it was over a long time ago, guys, you're only, have yourself you're, you're beyond um, the statute of limitations. You're exactly. Fine. But the, the Garvey's Nora and Kevin and the group moving to Jarden slash miracle in season two is because Nora wants to feel safe. And she believes that's where she'll be safe because of miracle texas or whatever but like she's just looking to feel safe and so there's this level of like what is going to make you feel safe right now even with the virus 
Like, at what point do we get to go outside? At what point do you feel like you've taken all the correct measures? Like, what is right? And is it coming back? Because that's the question is like, she had always thought it was a one-time occurrence and people are starting to allude that it could happen again. Where are you going to feel the most safe? And so there's just things, it is definitely a different direction in terms of quarantine watching. I think there's Shit's Creek is just the release of happiness and, and love. And then there's something like this that is how people are dealing with things and seeing that is also helpful. And so it's just, I did reach a threshold and I couldn't watch anymore yesterday. So we watched uh, Mrs. America. How is that? It's great. Okay. I'm excited to watch it. It's not what I thought it was. Everyone is in it. There's like, I mean, not everyone, obviously, but there are <laughs> everyone. so many people in it. Like the whole cast is recognizable. Kate Blanchett is delightful. And it's essentially a look at the passing of the ERA and the women's movement, but from two different angles, it's another concept of like, who's right. Or like, you know, within a group, different ways of approaching it is it's, women during that time kind of split into conservative and liberal. And you've got like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem on one side pushing to pass the ERA. And then you've got Phyllis Schlafly, otherwise known as Kate Winslet, on the other side as like home wives and homemakers that are worried about what that means for them, like that they could be drafted or alimony wouldn't be applicable. And it's basically told from two different female groups, which I think is also very interesting way into that time period. That's very cool. I'm excited to start it. Someone did mention it to me the other day and they're like, it's on Hulu. And I very quickly corrected them that it was on FX on Hulu. <laughs> Good job. It felt like a very needed differentiation between, I mean, Hulu makes incredible content and we love them. FX makes incredible content and we love them. So you just need to know that this is a combination of the two Correct. that is creating a brand new beautiful thing. And I feel that people should understand what that means. I agree. I, d I definitely agree. And because they drop three episodes, I've seen two of them. Um, and it feels like, I mean, they've had devs come out, but that this was a bit of a launch. I mean, I feel like we've been hearing about Mrs. America for like two years and working yeah. with them. And so seeing what it is and, you know, supporting them, I think in transitioning to kind of what's going on right now and in terms of the virtual festival and ATX TV from the couch, we're another week in, which again, just guys, we've all been saying it, but time seems to be both going by extremely quickly and extremely slowly. And I'm not sure how those two things can coexist at the same time. No, but it's absolutely true. It is no longer days of the week. It is today, the day. Yep, today. Um, so we are both going from, I think, a, we've got so much time. It's not until June. But we know we have to move quickly to, oh my gosh, how do you, what are you, what are we doing? Who, who's coming? What's going on? But we've spent the last week talking to all our partners and networks and studios and sponsors. And the good news is it's been really exciting. I mean, as quickly as virtual has sort of taken hold. Um, and we've obviously been watching a lot of things from webcast, webinar webcasts. And now I'm going to get it wrong. One together, one world together, at home together. What was it? You're, you're close. It's something, it's something along those lines, but it was great. It was great. So we watched that and like kind of seeing what people are doing and how we can feel engaged. It's fun to see that the, the networks and studios, I mean, we're sorting out what exactly ATX TV from the couch will be. And we talked a little bit about that last week, but it's been really satisfying and lovely and supportive 
to hear that networks and studios are also like, okay, we're in. We don't know what we're in to do, but we're in. Like, this is this is where we're at and we want to support you guys. It's also, you know, they can't have premieres and launch in the same ways that they used to. So participating in something like this is they're learning and changing. And so it's just been nice to kind of figure it out together. And hopefully in the next like week or more, we will know a lot more, including like where this is happening and how to register and what some of the shows will be. But it's just been nice to feel like we're in it together versus us and them are like, ah, oh, see you next year. Like there's been a figuring it out together, which has been really lovely. Yeah, I think the best part has been those networks and partners that have supported us for so many years were the first ones to jump on saying, this is really cool. You guys are wanting to do something different and we're here not only to try something different with you, also to support you. And then some networks that we've just really started working with this year that we're going to kind of make a bigger splash, like the CW, who we did the big Katie Keene event with in January, are fully on board. I mean, they're like, they were going to come on strong at the festival this year, which we were really excited about. And they're still going to come on strong for the virtual festival. It just is going to look a little different. Yeah, it has been really nice to be able to figure those things out. And people thinking outside the box, it doesn't just have to be a standard Q&A or a panel. Like we're looking to do some really engaging, interactive things with our community because, you know, we want to take TV camp for grownups virtual. We want it to feel like a festival. And so it's been fun to sort of get ideas based on like what people want to do. So hopefully we'll have more to tell people soon. Yeah, because I think just adding on to that, the one thing that we're trying our best to do is come up with big and small ways for people to be involved, for all of our partners and studio networks and panelists to be involved. So basically, we're telling everyone, if you want to be a part of this, we're going to find a way for you to be a part of it. And I think what that's going to open us up for is a lot of little surprises during the along the way. So we'll have our big pieces of programming that we'll announce ahead of time. And then all of the in-between, we'll have fun little surprises where people can pop in and pop out and interact with the audience and give some behind the scenes looks at their lives now. And I think that'll be really fun. That keeps people a little more on their toes throughout the whole weekend, not knowing exactly who's going to pop up when or where or how, or who they're going to be talking to. Yeah. I think it's going to, yeah, I'm very excited to see how it takes shape and the new people we get to work with. Like there's been some that have sort of popped up out of nowhere, like uh, Dell reached out to us a couple weeks ago and they want to be supportive. We've never worked with them before. I think that moving virtually, like figuring out our platform and our tech partners and things like that, like the things that they're going to be able to tell us about this world they know so much about and what we can physically do in it, I think Honestly, I'm just, I'm very excited to see what ATX TV from the couch can be during this time and then how it can be incorporated into season 10 next year. Agreed. Agreed. Um, So this week we are releasing the presidents of the state of TV from 2017, which was season five. And like we kind of also talked about last week. I think 17 was season six. Oh, and is it 14, 15, 16, 17? Yes. Not that that really matters. I mean, it kind of matters because I was going to say that it was an election year last time. I was trying to think when, when, what season this actually was for us. But regardless, when we picked up the schedule of this new podcast series, uh, we picked releasing this panel today because April 28th, which would be coming up and be close to this release date would be a big primary day 
for the Democratic primary. That has kind of changed. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yep. The world is changing every day. Who knew that the election would change so drastically so quickly? I know. So it's just sort of like insane to me that like it is obviously still an election year. It's obviously still very important. And we're seeing how much leadership matters right now, which I want to talk a little bit about. But like April 28th was supposed to be this giant primary day. And either now states have moved entirely to voting by mail or they've postponed. But even beyond that, you pointed this out as we started to look this up. I mean, the elections still matter. The primaries obviously still matter. But we have a we have a nominee now until the convention happens. It's <laughs> yes. not official, but like, you know, Bernie dropped out a couple of weeks ago and Biden is the only one left standing in a field that had what, 20 people at one point. The primaries have a little bit less sort of, um, <laughs> Dex- Dexter's joining in on the podcast. Um, <laughs> Dexter misses us. He misses us being all together. <laughs> yes. He was yelling. Um, but yeah, it's just funny that again, projecting to now, it is still important. We still wanted to release this, but I think now, as opposed to it being about this big primary and who is our Democratic nominee going to be, now it's more a concept about here are these presidents in television. You know, what does it mean to be a president right now? Like, what is the role of leadership in the face of the crisis, whether that's the country or the network or the studio or you and I, I think, have had a lot of conversations about that and leading our team and our community. Like, what do you do in these moments in terms of leadership as a president of something, I think is the part that has now become more relative to this week than the primary. Well, and I think because one of the things that's interesting about, so it was 2016 that we did the West Wing reunion and we were trying to do another sort of politics on television panel that year and no one wanted to be on it. No one wanted to talk about politics. No one wanted to say anything they were going to regret or get in trouble. And leading into this year before the past six weeks, everyone wanted to talk about politics. Everyone wanted to be on whatever political panel we were going to do, whatever we were going to talk about. They all wanted to take a stand. And I think the biggest difference between 2016 and now is I believe there is this shift in leadership in the people that are leading in that they're wanting to say what they believe in. Whereas in 2016, people just felt afraid to take a stand and that it was going to be polarizing and that they were going to divide countries, companies, whatnot. And this year, it was much more about you have to take a stand for what you believe in. And I think with this current pandemic, that's true more than ever, is that people are really having to like speak up and say what they believe is right and wrong, because that's how you're going to make change as opposed to just sitting back and kind of letting other people take control. It's the smaller communities and the leaders of all different sizes that were the first ones. I mean, I think about, we talked about it last time, but South by Southwest, I mean, for their leadership to step up and say, no, we can't happen. Or for Austin to step in and say, no, you can't happen. We have to protect you. Like that's huge. And what kind of leadership that took in order to make that decision, I can't even imagine. Well, you see that with even now with like the governors making decisions, even as residents maybe don't want shutdowns and quarantines and shelters at homes. And what does it take to say this is the right thing to do, or I believe this is the right thing to do. But then also to be able to show whether it's 
you know, your employees or your community in whatever ways that, you know, you're taking something seriously, that there are problems to be solved, but you are doing everything that you can to take care of them and to make strong decisions for them. I think about, I was looking through some things in terms of like in television more than politics, but, you know, in February, uh, you and I have both gotten a little obsessed with Bob Iger this year for obvious reasons, but we read his book and we're like this whole concept of where he took Disney in terms of acquiring Pixar and Marvel and then Fox and launching Disney Plus and like just his span as the head of Disney is amazing. And then kind of shocking to us and maybe other people in February, two years before his contract was up, he stepped down. And I read a quote that said that Literally in February, so like six-ish weeks ago, really, I think when I did the math, they said that Iger stepping down provided much-needed stability to the board and clarity for direct reports. And six weeks later, pretty much, he had to come back to basically do the same thing, to provide stability for board and investors and employees, because in the time of crisis, this thing he spent so long building and bringing to a place to have its next iteration, like... Is, is completely different. Disney makes a lot of its money, if not the majority, I think, from parks and resorts and cruises. And now all they have is Disney Plus, which is great. I can't imagine how grateful they are that they decided to launch it. I mean, way before this started happening. But can you imagine with box office being at zero and now the parks being closed for however long, even once they can open the parks back up, I mean, they can't be at full capacity for... And cruises. I was on a Disney cruise in August and it was one of the best weeks. It was so much fun. I was with my nieces and my parents and my sister and loved it so much. But I can't imagine. I mean, the amount of times we've said these past two months, we're so glad we went last year because when is the next time you're going to feel comfortable getting on a cruise ship? I mean, I went to Disney with Evan and his whole family in Florida in November. And I've thought about it, like the lines and the spaces, like a lot. I mean, I've been to Disney a lot, but even that recently, from a presidential leadership perspective, the idea that here's this guy who took it to this whole new level and then took his final moment to like take a step back, but stick around to help out and do like a two-year transition, basically. And then six weeks later has to be like, just kidding. It's a crisis they need me to come back. Like, I do believe he is working hand in hand with the other Bob that, yep. that he passed it on to. <laughs> that was taking um, over. Yeah. But just that in this moment, you need leadership. You need the person that you trust and believe in and that takes care of you. And you need to know that while they may not have all the answers, because who can you expect that from, that they're doing their due diligence to see ahead and to anticipate and take the initiative. And I think that's where it's interesting to think about what's happening across the country in every industry, but for ours in entertainment, how are they all looking ahead to how they will pivot, to use one of the very popular <laughs> words. And then in Your a new favorite word. Right. And then in a presidential year, like Trump has been judged on many things for many years, but like this is the last thing going into his reelection. If he's not being judged on how he's handling this, like I don't know what it is because it has to be, you know, how are you looking ahead to take care of people in a pandemic that apparently has always been known that it was possible? It's news to me, but people keep saying that they've known that this is a possible thing to prepare for for a long time. And like, how is it handled and testing and all of those things like that? That is what the president is there for. 
both in an election year and then talking about this panel on presidents of TV, which is a number of years ago, but here are presidents across streaming, Hulu, standard networks like NBC, and then cable networks like HBO, FX, and Showtime talking about their brands, their companies, and what their content means and how they lead in those positions is just, it felt time to revisit that. Well, it's also interesting looking at all these different presidents and who they are and what they're in charge of, and that some of them are still in place where they were. I mean, Casey Bloys is still at HBO and Nick Grad is still at FX, but they, the companies have changed. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I guess that is also crazy that they've either moved around like, so just to lay it out, Craig Erwick from Hulu, Jennifer Salke at NBC, Casey Bloys at HBO, Nick Grad at FX, and Gary Levine at Showtime. Well, if you look at it, is Craig still at Hulu? Craig is still at Hulu, but they've definitely changed around a lot since Disney+. Plus. So he's at Hulu. Nick Grad is still at FX, but yes, there's now FX on Hulu, and they're now both owned by Disney. Then Jen Salke is no longer at NBC. She's head of content at Amazon, which is a whole different thing, at film and television that she oversees. Casey is still at HBO, but HBO with the whole AT&T and the about to be launch of HBO Max, like he's got a whole nother level to deal with. Um, and Gary Levine's still at Showtime. I believe he has a new title as well, but now the Showtime CBS Viacom combo is like a whole new level of balancing, I'm sure, of like standing out as Showtime within the corporate structure is fascinating. I almost want to have this exact same panel with the, like these five people, like this year. <laughs> right. I mean, it would be so interesting. I mean, one, just looking at how the companies have changed, but two, looking at definitely even in the past three years, what streaming is now. I mean, every year it's more and more and more so and more prevalent in our lives. So what that takes, you know, what kind of pressure that puts on people, where, where does network, where does NBC stand in the ranks now and how many people are still watching it? Because even though everyone only really talks about streaming, I feel the networks are still pulling in huge numbers. You just don't talk about the shows as much. And why is that? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we do hope to, I mean, kind of jumping back and forth between ATX TV from the couch um, and this, we do, we are going to keep an industry element to the the virtual festival and we'll be working towards a president panel of some sort to sort of talk about, I mean, can you imagine in June beyond that, beyond streaming and like, what are the corporate is what's happening with production? You know, when is television going to be able to go back to quote unquote normal? What is the new normal? What is the rollout plan? Like we've had <laughs> yep. some interesting conversations about the ends of shows, especially shows that were in production and have had to rework finales and, you know, maybe didn't get to finish. And what do they do then? And how long can they wait? Do they push premiering or do they end in a whole new place and they just deal with it? It's, it's kind of crazy out there. Yep. I mean, there's, there's so much unknown and it'll be interesting to see if they all navigate it in the same way or if each company kind of takes their own stance and how they're going to do it. Like, is it a, we're all in this together. Let's all, you know, push the calendar or figure out how we can all still be on the same playing field or is there going to be a little bit more cutthroat and who can get back, who can 
have the most content where that kind of fighting leads. Yeah. Well, because the Emmy voting period has shifted, but then what else, what else shifts in that? Like they've canceled upfronts. So like, when are they going to decide if they're picking things up or not? I was wondering that. When do you decide? And how many pilots were they actually able to shoot? Because all of this happened during when you're really shooting pilots. So are you just pushing a whole Mm -hmm. season of things? Yeah. And then there's the things that were picked up straight to series. Like CW did that a lot with like Walker uh, and some other things that I think those stand, like I'm assuming those rooms are in progress, um, but they may not be filming. But then, yeah, things that were maybe freshman series, if they hadn't gotten pickups, like we think about that, like a lot of times, a lot of our network partners particularly will wait to confirm participation of a show in the festival based on that upfront. And they don't really, even if the show just ended in May, if they don't know it's going to be picked up, they are hesitant to participate. Well, would you participate this year? Because if you don't know if you're going to be picked up till August, like technically, shouldn't you like work on <laughs> that's also viewers and whatnot? A very long time to wait to know if you're picked up, which sounds terrible. Gosh, yeah. Also, I mean, they're it's all crazy. still going to streaming after they've aired, so I feel that you should still be pushing people to watch it this summer. Yeah, I agree. I don't know. Yeah, that's the one I've heard about the Emmy voting changing, and obviously, no productions are shut down and people are kind of trying to project when they might be back up and what that might look like. But what, when are the pickups happening is the question that like, I guess I haven't really asked, but also haven't even felt any inclination towards people's theories as to what happens with upfronts closed, like what, what timing changes in that space. Yep. So ultimately I think one can let people enjoy the presidents of the state of TV. It was a really, honestly, it was a really great panel to put together, um, feeling very proud of being able to get them all to agree and the amount of balancing we had to do to get them all there and sort of a wide representation that we hope everybody enjoys revisiting this panel. Nope, I kind of (laughs) like... Jumbled over you did that. Great work. I got there close. You did good I got close there. But I was trying to say, remember how like crazy it was to be like, well, what is this person's title? Oh. What is this person's they title? All have different Are they titles? actual presidents? I know. They all had different titles, even though they were all around the same level. It was very much trying to figure out, is this title equal to this title? And some of these titles feel made up, but they're still the most senior person at the company. So, yes. Yeah, I feel like it's specifically when you get into streaming, their titles just don't translate to more traditional cable networks. Um, But without any more delay, (laughs) we hope that you guys enjoy the Presidents of the State of TV, moderated by Deborah Birnbaum, formerly Editor-in-Chief of Variety. Oh, my God. Hi, everyone. How you doing? (laughs) Well, I don't think you're here to see me, but I'm very excited to talk about not the president, because I think we've had more than enough talk about that president. <laughs> so let's talk about the other presidents, the presidents we like. Let's t- <laughs> Am I betraying my biases too much? <laughs> not at all. Let's start with Craig Arick, the pre- head of content at Hulu. And let's bring out Jennifer Salke, the president of entertainment at NBC. (laughs) 
Casey Bloys, the president of programming at HBO. Nick Grad from FX. And Gary Levine from Showtime. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Happy Great. to be in Austin. Welcome to Austin. All right, so you're all presidents. You get to issue an executive order. <laughs> it comes with the job title, I understand. Um, what would your first executive order be if you got to be president? Of a net, well, you're president of a network, but imagine you got to do a unilateral executive order. What would your executive order be? A no asshole policy. <laughs> I'm going to second that. I like that. Yeah. Everywhere. So, so you're saying, like, if I'm based on the example in our country, so if you're president, you get you to be, anything. you're the boss. You just get to you're do whatever the, boss, the fuck you, get you want, to do right? Um, I guess make sure everyone has to somewhat be profitable. <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> Naming any names there? <laughs> I think that uh, people in Hollywood give too many gifts to each other. So that's I, I agree with that. Yeah. We don't need gifts. We don't. Are you? What are you talking about? <laughs> we don't need any more. I used to get like TVs. I don't get yeah, anything no, anymore. I, I don't need a bicycle. I don't need any more bicycles. No, I think the gifts should go up a little more. No more sweatshirts. No more. Yes. No, no more fleece. <laughs> You can just take out the stitching of the yeah. fleece, whatever show it is. Okay. I'm a billboard at the gym when I go with all yeah. my swag. Um, I guess my executive order would be to ban series orders off of pitches. Let's actually develop something and, uh, and do it right. How important is brand identity to you? Is that something that you know, feels like defines your networks? Uh, absolutely. Very, very important, always has been. I think that's, that's all you, I mean, that's all you have, really. I mean, I, I sort of consider myself, I mean, we have a, the, the most amazing marketing department, but to some degree, I'm, a, I'm, I'm marketing a brand by the, by the portfolio of shows that we have. And so I also think if you don't, first of all, if you don't have a brand, I think the, the way that the world is going right now, you're, you're, you're going to be kind of up shit's Creek. But I also think that it, it helps you make decisions, and I think you can actually be more efficient with your development spend, what you kind of reach for by having a brand. If you're trying to, if you don't know who you are, you're just going to be flailing about, just throwing spaghetti at the refrigerator. Though I, I was, going, I, I do think you need to. I think it's you do have to have a brand because it helps you, you know, pick what to develop. But also, you can't always let it lock you in because you know um, I did not developed Game of Thrones, but I was there when it aired, and I remember a lot of re response was, that doesn't seem like a Game of Thrones show. You know, uh, so you have to be aware of how the brand can evolve. Um, it doesn't have to be just one thing. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's, you know, flexibility within what the brands are. We sort of found our way to this brand that feels very sort of human and positive, and it's not just This Is Us, it's The Voice, it's a lot of uh, other shows, including, you know, the comedies. And I think you do have to be flexible, though, because a lot of people would have said that This Is Us didn't feel like a network show, but to me it felt very much on brand with 
where we wanted to be. And um, I think it's a good example of kind of stretching outside toward a feeling and a, and a, a quality that you are looking for. I mean, talk about This Is Us, because it was developed at another studio and then brought to you. How does that feel for you in this era where there's so much pressure on vertical integration? Um, well, the pressure, there is pressure for vertical integration, but I wouldn't say there's, you know, overlord pressure that we need to supply from our own studio. We will always buy the show from wherever it comes, the great show. Likewise, the thing that feels a little scary and maybe off-brand, but, you know, there's a Venn diagram that seems to be, you know, lining up for us, we would step out of our comfort zone. I never doubted, I never thought for a second, oh, shoot, you know, this isn't a a universal show. I just was like, we have to have the show. So I think you can't let greatness. There's so few things that come through that are truly inspired. You have to jump on them no matter what they are. And, you know, certainly at the same time, I'm trying to build studio assets that can help us, you know, be able to continue to take the financial swings that we want to take uh, running this business, this crazy business. I mean, we're incredibly proud at Showtime of the breadth of shows that together make up our brand rather than sort of having a brand that's a funnel that you have to squeeze through you know from the uh, the extravagant opulence of billions to the uh, irrepressible poverty of uh, shameless and uh, from the global thriller of homeland to the uh, to the intimate uh, relationship drama of the affair you know i i, I think i think we we try to keep expanding what defines the brand of Showtime, and yet still hope and believe that within that wide range of shows, there is something in the DNA of each of them that makes you understand why it's on Showtime. Craig, how would you define the brand of Hulu? Um, well, I think it's evolving. Um, you know, we're kind of we're trying to continue to build upon our success, and you know, I think when we started, we really were. Um, trying to make great shows and then kind of connect the dots of what was responding uh, with our audience. I mean, the, what we, the word we talk about most is relevancy. You know, we want to be in the conversation. It's critical for us, um, not just from a creative point of view, but from a business point of view. I mean, we are, we're in a subscription business, so we need to have people talking about us. Um, and there has to be a feeling that what we're doing is premium because we're literally asking people to pay for the, to pay for the product. Um, so that relevancy, while being entertaining, is really where we aspire to be. You've obviously had great success just now with Handmaids. I'm a fan. How has that changed the conversation for you? Um, well, I mean, first and foremost, it's something that, you know, all the employees at Hulu are extraordinarily proud of. It's been really special and galvanizing to the organization. Um, it's definitely set the bar for us in terms of quality. And again, kind of seeing us talked about um, in a very special way. Um, so, you know, we, I think all of us, I think the entire TV business, what's great about it is you're constantly, the bar is constantly being raised. So we don't just do it for ourselves, other people do it for us. So when there's a, a hit show on another network, that becomes the new bar. So we just put one up there. We've heard a lot about peak TV. <laughs> what does it take for a show to break out in this climate of you know, 400, 500 scripted series on the air? What is it that, what is that magic formula? 
I mean, when I think about it, it's really, it's always amazes me that these shows can break out in a world where there's so much and there's so many talented people that are able to make things right now and get them out in the world. And, you know, obviously, you know, it's, there's whatever, 400, 500 and climbing, you know, numbers of shows um, and, and also other competition for people's time to do so many other things. And it's just... You know, you I, you just have to keep striving for something really inspired, and then you've got to have a good strategy. And obviously, marketing is so important, and digital marketing, and how are we reaching audiences that aren't watching traditional promos? I can speak mostly from a network uh, point of view only because it's it's been like you know shifting the Titanic in so many ways. So it's uh, it's really hard. The stars have to align, but I really do believe great things like Handmaid's Tale, like shows on every one of the platforms that these guys represent and that you know these shows are contagious you feel them in the halls they they are bigger than shows uh, themselves and those things i think always will find a space even if there's a thousand choices of things to watch i mean what's great is is also is you don't have to come out of the I, I think there was a time where you had to come out of the gate and if you know you just didn't have a successful same day ratings for your pilot for your first episode, you were kind of dead in the water. There was no way for people to catch up. We want things to, to obviously break through. I mean, it was amazing to me that Atlanta came out of the gate, you know, in the first season with such buzz and such ratings. I sort of expected all those things to happen in season two because that's what had happened with Louie and Archer and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which it became a word of mouth conversation. But I think it goes back to if the show is great, People will talk about it, and you will find an audience. It happened with the Americans. It, you know, if, if it's there, people hopefully will discover it. And sort of being original and being great will help you cut through the clutter. How patient are you willing to be? I think I, look. I think it's I think it's a function of, a, of of so many things. I mean, obviously, it's it's somewhat related to budget, but it's it's sort of about what. What role is that show playing? You know, what value are you getting out of that show? It, the Americans is not lighting it on fire from a ratings perspective, but it's invaluable to us. It's one of it's, you know, I think it's the best show in television, one of the best shows in television, and you know, it gets nominated for awards and people talk about it, and you know, you can't you can't put a price on that. So, as long as we're getting some value out of it, that's that, those are the shows we want to keep. Right, like I can't, I, I know Casey the least, but I know like all these people will back quality. So if it, if you can make some sense of it and you're not, you know, it's not a ridiculous piece of business and you believe that it can catch on and that you have something there, I think all of us work at companies that will stand behind that. And I think, you know, the measurement for success has changed the, the way things are measured. I don't wake up anymore with like a pit in my stomach at 4.45 to look and see if like my show that I love is dead or alive on arrival. Well, sure, if it's dead, dead, you kind of know. As he said, you're not going anywhere from there, so I might like do like a fake one-eyed look. Do they um, still have the phone number you call to get yeah. ratings? No, I don't a... have that. But I remember that. <laughs> you dial a number and some person had to get up at like crack of dawn and record yeah. all that. No, it's, you know, it's you, you get it. We get a report, you know, look at like a show like This Is Us. 
it, the ratings are one seven in the live view, and it'll be down. It'll be down as sure as there's gravity. All these live numbers are going to go down for us. And an hour later, that rating is doubled and then tripled and so on. So you get an accounting of these shows that's a much bigger view of, of what they are. And then you look at them in terms of, is there a vision here? Do I believe in this? Do I think this is going to catch on? And then, you know, to be able ha to have our shows on Hulu and Netflix and have audiences discover them a year after they've been on and come back to a second season, it's just a very different business. And as you know, it changes. It's changing every hour as we're sitting here. I do think we've gone through a little bit of a process with the press over many years to try to explain that the Sunday ratings, while important, yes, you're, you're the press representative. The Sunday morning, uh, Sunday ratings, while important, you know, for us, it's maybe 30% of the total, and that's just gonna continue to go down. I was, um, I think Game of Thrones, when we started on digital platforms, uh, amount, uh, accounted for about 2% of the total, and now it's about 26% of the total of viewing, and that's only gonna go up. So the, the where people watch, how they watch, obviously is, is shifted. I think, I think the other thing for us, and I think probably for all of us, is it's not just so much how many people are watching, but what's their intensity of relationship to the show. Um, you might have a show that does maybe not the biggest audience, but if it is a bunch of those people's favorite show, and if the economics bear out, then it's a show you can stick with. I like a show that generates think pieces. <laughs> Honestly, because it is an indication of this is a show that people are thinking about, analyzing, debating, um, and that that's important. I also think you know peak TV is a great subject for panels and uh, and essays. That only but, took ten minutes to get that but, phrase out. <laughs> <laughs> but but in terms of our jobs, you know we're really we don't we don't live in the macro. We live in the micro, and and I think for us it's really carefully building a show and 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 keeping that pure and perhaps naive uh, but hopeful mantra that you know if you build it they properly they will come and uh, and and that seems to be the case and I and I think it's 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 the reason all of us have had the the, the successes we've had and and one success of one of us doesn't impinge upon the success of the rest of us so and then on the flip side, what makes you decide to then cancel the show? To me, when it, the show is upside down financially and there's no galvanizing force of passion around it and the showrunner struggling with his vision or her vision, and it's just the show is pushing a rock up a hill without all the you know bells and whistles that come with there's something here just hang in there. We very much listen to that. I mean, it's about, and fan engagement. These guys just talked about it. It's like, are people talking about the show? Is it creating communities? Or are you losing kind of passionate, core, you know, fans of it right away? Or did they never build? And then sometimes it's heart, you know, it's often heartbreaking, but you have to just uh, cut bait. And we're obviously all in business to make money. I think we're in a time now where people can tolerate breaking even while we continue to evolve a digital aspect strategy in my world so it's you know we can tolerate that for a minute because we've seen it flip on us with being able to monetize the digital views in a way that we didn't think was possible so you see things picked up on our schedule you might ask why is something that was a 0.7 could be ordered it's ordered because we figured out a way to monetize it so we're not losing money on any shows but that's really the the sort of prism you have to put it through but it, i think it comes down to sort of passion and you know where's the show sit financially on the pnl I think in our subscription universe uh, that Casey and I share, and 
and Craig. Um, you know, the criteria a little different. If you love it, and if people love it, the numbers are, are far less important, you know? And so it really is sort of your continuing love of it and belief in a show and feeling that that love is being returned by some part of the of the audience and uh, and and some part of the world you know it could be could be awards could be media coverage could be buzz could be think pieces um, it, there are many different criteria but if if you believe in that show and believe that the people making it are on their way to to greatness we have the luxury of sticking with it uh, for a very long time I think uh, my boss John Langrup said um, I think at uh, TCA a year ago it's, um, the audience gets a vote, we get a vote, the critics get a vote. I mean, I, and if you can get two of those, two of those three, you're probably going to stay on the schedule. Yeah. That makes sense to me. You know, how you measure the audience now getting a vote, you know, is it gets into complexity. You know, obviously you have to be very patient with waiting for all the, the real numbers and and that takes a long time to get, and 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 it's a question of it's a function of of passion of of those viewers too. When the CFO gets a little vote. <laughs> <laughs> How competitive is the marketplace now to land a project, given that there are so many people now vying for you know hot projects that are out there? And what does it take for you then to land that project? Do you have to go straight to series, as you mentioned? It Each project is different. It depends. Uh, I mean, it's. There's a lot of packages. Some of them sell quickly. Some of them, you know, that I think will sell don't. Um, it really just depends. Um, and you just have to evaluate a case by case. A lot of it is, what do you need? You know, what is your network missing? And um, where do you want to go programming-wise? So I think you have to be open to all of it. It's, I mean, it's an extraordinarily frothy market. Um, but I, uh, I agree with Casey, and I, I agree with Gary in terms of his uh, his wish list. Um, it's very, very competitive. But I think that you have to kind of you just have to pick and choose when you're going to go for it. You can't do that on every single one, you know. And it, it goes towards what are you passionate about, what do you believe, and where where are you willing to take educated chances? Yeah, I, like I believe I, I, I echo what Gary was saying earlier. I, you know, I believe in. I believe in the script process. I believe in the pilot process. I think you learn so much from from developing a script. Then you learn so much from the pilot process. You know, we we from the amount of pilots we do. I mean, I think we, we're at like ninety percent, maybe ninety-two percent from pilot to series. So we usually go forward, but we learn so much on it. And you know, I think when you're jumping into straight to series or from a pitch to a pilot, I mean, I just lost something to Craig that was a pitch that he made a pilot commitment on, and it's, what are you going to do? You just, you have to be very You guys going to drink it, it out later? <laughs> I think it also, it depends, yeah, and it depends. What was the project? Oh, oh my God, it wasn't. Oh, come on. Uh, do you know, it I, depends, I, you know, it also, I think it depends, um, I agree, it depends where you are in your business, too. I mean, we are, you know, Hulu is still scaling up. Um, so I don't know, you know, we started off more in a kind of a straight to series business because we needed shows on the air quickly. Um, it is certainly fraught with risks and it, it's not for people of weak stomachs. <laughs> um, but to be competitive every once in a while, you have to do it. But I agree the, you know, the, there is a reason that you, there is a kind of inherited development process. I also, you know, 
the network learns a lot. We just lost out to Casey on something, actually. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we all lose things to Casey. <laughs> no, but, but what I was going to say, keep I, asking. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the pilot process as well, because not only does, does the network learn something, but the showrunner sometimes yeah. goes in thinking that the show is going to be one thing and, you know, turns it a certain way based on casting or based on um, how things are playing. You, it is an educational process. So it, it started to, for some, you know, the straight to series became a weirdly like a mark of respect. Like you didn't, you thought less of someone if you didn't give them a straight to series order. But it really is a valuable process to get to get things right. And overseeing the studio and kind of having the hand in strategizing where a lot of our deals want to go, if they are determined to go set their show up on any of these other platforms. You know, I think we've gotten to a point where they're, they'll have, they want to have the conversation. They want to hear why I think the show could work on NBC. And then we really just have a meeting of the minds on what's the best place for the project. And it's hard because sometimes you like with Kimmy Schmidt and other things, I have to make, you know, the decision with others to let the show live where it has the best chance of succeeding. Um, but if we're dealing with people who are thinking something's a network show or they still they have a lot of affection for network, which there are a lot of people left that still do who are really talented, that I feel like you know NBC's in a good position to, to get those things, but it's all about talent relations for me. That's my kind of if you don't if you're not relating to talent and getting them to trust you and believe that you have their back, you're kind of just out there with everyone else sort of putting, putting your hand out. Um, Jen is the broadcast representative on the panel. Do you feel pressured to be be able to offer shorter episodes runs to compete? Yeah, we have to, we have multiple rise. The new Jason Kadem show is a ten episode order. Um, Reverie the, is a ten episode order. I think you know we are will. Part of it is scheduling. Part of it is creative. So Dan Fogelman wanted to do sixteen episodes of This Is Us. We decided eighteen was the right number for the way it laid in the schedule. We're making 18. We picked it up for two more years, so lots more episodes coming. But like we looked at Rise, there was a perfect run for a straight, you know, 10 episodes of Rise, you know, in the in mid season with the voice, and we just thought this is a awesome place for the show, great opportunity. Who wants three dangling episodes? And I think kind of press is starting to understand that. If we said it was 13 and now it's 10, it's not like, oh, they've lost confidence. There's a smarter strategy afoot. Casey, you just had obviously a lot of success with Big Little Lies and Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon. Woo! <laughs> Has that opened the door? I mean, we saw now Julie Roberts now, it wants to, you know, is going to be making a, a project with you. Has that opened the door to more movie stars? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, the the... Everybody always says, you know, the, the uh, everybody will do TV now. And even when I, when I got to HBO 13 years ago, people said that. And it wasn't really true. You know, people would occasionally maybe do a movie or something like that. Um, but I, I think any, but any star, you know, if the material is good, uh, will do a show. I, I really do. I don't think there's any, uh, I don't think there's anybody, actor or actress, who has not contemplated it. I don't think there's anybody who's not gettable. Yeah, Gary, I, you certainly have a lineup as well. Yeah, yeah, we, we've been doing limited series as well. And, you know, they are a double-edged sword, you know. On the one hand, they're events. You can do some material that really is finite uh, and, and works. Though I must say, 
everyone who comes into Pitch a Limited series ends by saying, and we know what to do in season two. <laughs> that's true. Um, <laughs> that's now the thing. But the, the, the other side of the double-edged sword is we've had a lot of success in luring great actors to television to do ongoing, many, many year series. And, uh, and if those actors can play in the TV sandbox and only commit to eight hours, one season, that's tempting and, and, uh, and with very generous fees to boot. And, and, and in some <laughs> ways, generous. you know, in some ways we may be, you know, um, you know, hurting ourselves because, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the brass ring still is the long, ongoing series where a network invests in a show, an audience invests in those characters, and, and, and the love flows in all directions for, for many, many years. And um, I think, you know, the limited series are great, a, a lovely complement to that, but by no means a substitute for it. And in some ways, they may be undermining our ability to get some of those actors. Well, I, yeah. I think it should also, you should also point out you know, if you think about, you know, big shows the last 10 years, you know, Sopranos, Breaking Bad, um, uh, Handmaids, uh, American, Americans, no movie stars. They're not necessary to, um, to launch a show. I mean, they're not, you know, it's nice to have great actors, but I don't think it should be a requirement. I also think that I agree about the double-edged sword because I also think one of the things that TV does really well is I think the audiences love discovering people. Um, so the arms race of big talent, I think, sometimes can take away from that. And if you look at the movie business, just because if you have a big star doesn't mean you're guaranteed box office success. So it's, it's not, it's a, it's, it gives you a comfort and it's definitely a way to make an event, but it is not a uh, recipe, oh, a guaranteed recipe for success. Yeah, cast, casting is a process and, and it's about, you know, matching the right, you know, performer to the right role. And there are no rules about it. And we'll, we'll, we'll pivot based on just a gut feeling or however our, our, our creators feel. And so th it's not, look, I'm a huge Yankee fan. I feel like they had a terrible period where they were just buying the highest priced free agent. And that does not, that does not always equal success. So it's, 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 a it's, there's no guarantee that you have this. By the way, there's no guarantee movie stars can open movies. You know, it really all depends on the project. So it's not like every Tom Cruise movie makes a billion dollars. You know, it all depends the last on one just the did. project. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a very complicated, you know, process of chemistry. And This Is Us is a good example of that. I mean, there's some great actors in there, but there's it's not it's not huge stars and some real discoveries that have broken yeah, out in an incredible way. Yeah, exactly. So when you have now Chrissy Metz on a cover with, you know, Oprah Winfrey and Reese Witherspoon, it's like it's just amazing. And so, like Craig said, I think people love those stories. They love to make a star. And um, Gary, back to your point about season two. So you've got these great successes with season one. You know, how do you then, you know, recapture that for season two? So I'm not going to let you get away with answering the question about Big Little Lies season two. Well, I mean, we've, we've been pretty open about um, it was based on a novel with a beginning, middle, and an end, and the creative team really did have a great time. So, you know, they went to Leanne and said, "Could you ever, you know, you know these characters best? Could you? Are there any stories that would make sense?" 
she's thinking about it. I don't know. I mean, it, it is tough. I agree. Um, it has to be really good. The bar is very high. But um, I don't Bigger, think... Bigger, littler, <laughs> <There you go>. <laughs> <laughs> We got There's the poster. There's the pitch. I like it. <laughs> Bigger, litter, littler. <laughs> Bigger, smaller. Um, but uh, I don't think this group is going to do something. You know, they've, they've, you know, they've got lots of movies and other things to do, so they're only going to do something if it rises to that. They did seem like they had fun on Instagram. They, yeah. They really did. They it's just a great like, group. They just like. And I mean, the, not just the actresses, uh, Jean-Marc, uh, David, Kelly, the whole group worked really well together. It was a great experience for everybody. So, we'll be waiting. Um, we've gotten pretty far into this without talking about Netflix. They finally have started to cancel shows. Does this show that they're human after all? <laughs> have they canceled shows? Did you report on that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we reported on it. I will pass around my phone again. Teasing me. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad they're canceling shows. Like, I, 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 it's good. I mean, you know, I don't know what their ratings are, but they, they obviously have to start making decisions. They can't have, you know, ten thousand shows on. So, that, that, you know, I think it, it, it brings them sort of back in the ecosystem of where we're all trying to. Um, you know, kind of make the best shows and make the best decisions. I, I, you know, I, I, I rescind what I said before about making a profit. Like, their business is, they don't have to be profitable now. That's fine. That's, that's their business, and we have a different business. And I, I, it's actually quite petty to complain about it, so uh, let me rescind that comment I made before. Um, we just have to, do, they have a lot more shots. We just have to do better. No one else biting on that one? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they're capitalists, so I assume they are, at any given time, making the best decision yeah. that they think is in the interest of their business. So if canceling shows is at the phase where they are, it makes sense. What keeps you all up at night? What worries you? <laughs> How low the linear live rating can go, which is, I think, very low. <laughs> You know, shows a show coming together is lightning in a bottle. You know, um, there are so many elements that can go right or wrong. So on any given night, it is some, you know, script, piece of casting, director, something that I think, oh, it's not going to work out. I mean, that that sort of thing. The the details of of the shows. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to worry about. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, I, I think we all, I think the business of, um, I'll use Hollywood in quotation marks, like the, the entertainment business, we, we, I think we, we make programming, we do a really good job of it. And I think what's great is, you know, you just worry about like the lack of home runs. And I think if there are not enough big hits out there, you know, um, it's, it's sort of, like people thrive, like I'm so glad about This Is Us because I think it just makes people believe in it again. And I think if everything gets too fragmented, sort of no one believes that there's like this kind of big, you know, jackpot at the end of the rainbow. And I think, I think it's good to have a world where there can be big hits and you can write a check to, a big check to talent, which is one of the best parts of the job. So I, I hope that we can still have more um, big hits in our business. I mean, I, I agree with Casey. It's, you know, you, 
you get behind these shows, you have a fantasy vision of that you share with the creators of what you want it to be and what you hope it could, will be and what you hope people will react to it. Um, but you worry about, you know, is it going to come together? And will people love it as much as you do? Because it can be a vulnerable place to be. I sleep really well at night. Um, I don't know. I may be shallow. Um, no, it's funny. What wake, it, actually, I go to sleep easily. I, I may get up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning with a start. And, uh, and, it, and it usually is about you know, smaller creative matters. You know, that story, that actor, that director, that issue on, on that particular show. You know, I mean, we, you know, we, are, uh, we have highfalutin titles, but we really are, you know, on the line working and molding and cajoling uh, each, each little piece of the puzzle. And those little pieces uh, occupy a lot of brain space. Talk about that process. I'm always so interested in the notes process and how you work with your showrunners. Talk about a note that you gave that maybe turned a show around or made a big difference in it. And I'd love to hear specifics. Well, um, okay, I'll start. Um, uh, look, it's a delicate process. Um, you know, there, there have been, you know, networks that, that speak with pride about leaving leaving their artists alone and letting them do what they want. Um, at Showtime, we take great pride in collaborating with our artists. Um, and uh, and um, they, are, they, they get to decide, but we're going to, like, like any wonderful writer has a great book editor, um, you know, we're objective eyes and, and we can bounce things off them. And again, we have complete confidence in them ultimately to do what their vision is. But they're also you know, buried with, with 42,000 things coming at them at, at, at all different moments. And we have a little, a little distance and kind of remember where it all began. You know? And remember that thing you were going for? Let's, let's keep going for that. Um, so if I was going to point to one, um, and I hope there's more than one good note I've given. Um, uh, I would bring up um, oh Homeland okay the uh, Homeland was a, a was a spec script yeah it's it's a it's a good one Homeland Homeland was a spec script that um, based on an Israeli format where Howard Gordon and Alex Ganza um, did a lot of a lot of big adaptation from the Israeli to a spec script that they wrote they were on a deal at Fox and and they went I think to network and, and inside first. Um, and uh, and um, David Nevins had just come to Showtime at the time. He was rabid to get this. And luckily, um, based on circumstances and the relationship and, and just uh, the way these things go sometimes, it ended up uh, uh, coming to Showtime. But that really began the process of developing it into a Showtime series. And, uh, and Howard and Alex are magnificently talented writers. And it was so much fun to just you know, keep, keep spurring them on to go further, go deeper. And particularly because they had just come off 24, which was you know, where, where the emphasis had to be on these really interesting plot twists, surprising plot twists. And the spec script of Homeland certainly had that. Um, and what I think we were able to, to do with very little coaxing because of their incredible ability was to 
get them to make the, the, the surprises within the characters as compelling as the plot twists. And in fact, Carrie Matheson in the original spec script had no issues. She, she simply was a CIA agent with, uh, who knew a secret, who had been told a POW might have been turned. Um, but personally, was kind of a blank slate. And, um, and she's one of the most fascinating characters on television. So, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, all artists are different. So we try and really tailor the kind of creative process around what their needs are and how they respond. Because you, you can't have a one size fits all communication policy. You've got to get in there. You've got to figure out what makes them work. You really have to earn trust. Um, so I always feel like the most critical phase is the early phase, you know, in terms of making creative choices and, you know, demonstrating that you're, you've created a safe space for them to work. And I agree. I think, you know, frequently um, at Hulu, a lot of it is, you know, letting writers trust their characters and, you know, letting things play out more um, versus, you know, most of us have grown up on, you know, 40, 50 years of a certain pace of storytelling, you know, and still getting them to kind of balance delivering the entertainment value, but at the same time, letting things breathe and be authentic. Um, and actually, sometimes I think the fun of it is kind of noticing something off to the side that really sparkles and having them put it more in the center. You know, I, we engage in this. Um, I, I don't have too much to add. You know, you just try and get in, inside their process and try and help the creators make it the best show it can be. I mean, I mean, there's too many examples of, you know, I don't, I kind of like let the writers have, you know, sort of their, you know, I don't want to pat myself on the back for like, oh, I was the one who told them, to, you know, OJ should not be guilty. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we have those conversations all the time. I mean, I think what, what you know, won't, one thing that was interesting is when we, before Noah Hawley came aboard, when we were developing Fargo, you know, we were very insistent that it, it did not have any of the characters from the movie just because it was so, you know, it, it, it's such a, an incredible movie and, you, you, can, you know, it's too high of a bar to live up to. And so uh, Noah Hawley was thinking, had thought about a Fargo pitch but it was you know it was based on the movie and and that was sort of a trigger for him to rethink it and you know and that was you know that was a good example of you know a, a note that sort of sparked something really you know really creatively excellent yeah i you know our philosophy is always making sure the creator knows it's their show our opinions are opinions and non-binding so once they feel that you know we're not going to impose our vision or ideas. It's, it's really just, you know, outside opinions for their benefit or not, uh, and let them make the decisions. And, you know, the, the only example I would give, and only because she talked about it, uh, I, I wouldn't, again, I don't want to pat myself on the back. And actually, this doesn't make me look. <laughs> In the third season of Girls, I told Jenny Connor, there's too much there. There's too much. Uh, Jess was in therapy. I said, there's too much therapy up top. There's too much therapy. No, 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 disagreed, disagreed. So we let them do it. They shot it, and they came back, and they said, there's too much therapy. <laughs> Can we reshoot it? Uh, and I said, ah, oh, yeah, OK. You know, but I think after that, they were like, you know, 
let's let's uh, pay more attention next time. So um, that's it. But it, it was an expensive way to uh, <laughs> turn to their the trust, yeah, yeah. right? I do think it's really that is very relevant because once you earn the trust of a creator. It turns into a conversation. I mean, we're never, I really am anti with my team, and thank God none of them are like this anyway, to be like on page eight, like strap in, we're going to give you two hours of notes, and I'm going to tell you how to rephrase this. And that's like the opposite of, of our style. So to me, it's what's the intention, and if I get it, you know, the script or whatever it is, piece of the pilot or the episode, and if I'm not emotionally connecting to what their intention was, then we just have a conversation about it. Like I'm not, I'm not feeling it. I'm not getting it. And if you build, like I mentioned, the talent relations piece earlier, it's so important to have these partnerships with everyone. And you know, it's not possible with everybody. Sometimes chemistry makes that impossible. But when you have it, there's nothing better because they actually want to know what you think. And if you can talk to them about it in a way that's respectful, you're leaving the solutions to them. Maybe they want to throw some ideas at you back and forth. Depends on the person. So I've been lucky to have some great sort of creative partnerships like that in my career that really truly I think are the highlights. Like when I think back on my life, I won't remember all these notes meetings and I'll remember this panel because it's amazing. <laughs> but I won't remember. Yes, I won't be thinking in my bed about all these things. But I will remember these key relationships with uh, people like Ryan Murphy, um, Brian Fuller, uh, Dan. Uh, I actually have a really close relationship with Dick Wolf. So those things are the most gratifying to me in my career, really. Remember, TV campers, this year, due to the pandemic, ATX Festival Season 9 is going virtual June 5th through 7th, 2020. It's ATX TV from the couch. For information about the status of the festival, go to atxfestival.com or follow us on social media at ATX Festival. Now, back to the panel. All right, I want to open it up to questions to the audience. I'm just going to do one lightning round. Um, show on another network you're jealous of. Fleabag. That's really good. Uh, um, I loved OJ. I thought it was great. Westworld. <laughs> What's with the pause? We all did it. We all did it. There's so much pain. <laughs> There's so much pain in this because um, some of them started development in, at Showtime. Um, I, I, I want to give a, a, a salute to Handmaid's Tale. I was going to, too. I could pick one on each thing, but I mean, Big Little Lies, Homeland, you know, Craig, Handmaid's just, Tale. I have an Emmy question. Are you entering Handmaid's in the unscripted or the scripted? <laughs> Document, documentary. <laughs> I will Reality say that series. you look at these shows, and um, not to hijack the question, but you look at these shows like Big Little Lies, Handmaids, even Homeland to some extent. There's these incredible women at the center of these shows, and you look at what's happening with um, Wonder Woman, and just this feeling of uh, you know wanting to tell these stories uh, built around women and authenticity. And I just really love all of those shows. That I'll, just I'll also add one thing. I, as a compliment to you know my peers on the stage is you know we're not just in the business of you know original programming but we have a big acquired business um, you know we want our viewers to kind of catch up on past seasons of the best of television and we have literally bought 
shows from every single person on the panel yeah, up here. Partners, this yeah. is us. You know, we have signed up literally to buy every show that FX Productions makes, Homeland. So, you know, there's a lot of good stuff being Can made. Can I tell you something? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How much? <laughs> Let's make a deal. Yeah. All right, I'll turn it over to you guys now. That we, a, a trait that I want to possess or that a showrunner, I would like a showrunner to have? Either or. I guess both to be active listeners. Yeah. I would say, you know, back to the, the, the notes process, one of the um, mistakes that I see younger development executives make is you can't get invested in your proposed solution. We don't offer solutions. You just say, here's what's, you know, not making sense to us. But sometimes when a younger development exec executive or older one, uh, it's not just about the young, but uh, experience levels, they get, they get invested in their own, idea. their own idea. And you really have to you know, guard against that, because it's not about you fixing it. It's about the writer coming through that process on their own. Yeah, it's not about like this, this magical scene from a movie where you have the solution. And all of a sudden, it's, you know, that's, that's the, 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 you know, it, it, it fixes everything. You know, we're not, especially on our shows. We're not. I mean, I'm not particularly interested in plot so much. Like, that's more for procedurals. You know, the plot is there just to serve the character. And I think if you're having, if you're dealing with that, you're likely going to have more discussions and conversations. And so, it really is about, you know, empathy, which you know, listening, being able to sort of understand someone's intent. And so, it really. You know, it, so it, it's being like a, a lot of huge part of the job is just managing people and being able to have a conversation with them and understanding their intent. I, I think the other thing I'd say is keeping your ego in check. You know, I, I think uh, uh, if you're dealing with an artist, they know immediately if you're in love with the sound of your own voice and and you're and you're trying to win the argument as opposed to it's about the work. And, and whatever, you know, best idea wins, uh, this isn't about anyone's uh, ego. And, and I, think, I think, you know, I mean, we, we have a, a terrific group of creative execs that, that I'm lucky enough to, to have working for me. And, uh, and I think to a person, it's, um, it's always about the work rather than about their own ego. Great, next question. I have to watch reality to get, and so Tiny House is on HGTV. Yeah. <laughs> There's a show on Vice called F That's Delicious that, or Fuck That's Delicious, that's <laughs> like, I'm obsessed with that show. So that's my guilt, that is truly my guilty pleasure. I, this is really embarrassing, but I will, I will just sometimes just, uh, the kids and I will just watch diners, drive-ins, oh, and dives. Yeah. That's not embarrassing. It's not embarrassing. Bachelor. More his. his <laughs> <laughs> what is that? Bachelorette. Oh yeah. yeah. Love it. And the Bachelor. Yeah. Go ahead. Is there a show that broke your heart to cancel that you couldn't justify keeping it? Yes, the new normal, Ryan Murphy. 
It was a comedy on our schedule at a time we just didn't have, we were kind of in a confused state, new on the scene at NBC, new management, a lot of great beloved shows like The Office and 30 Rock and Community and Parks and Rec had kind of come to their end and we were sort of grappling and we tried some things with some incredible uh, pieces of talent and a great voice like Ryan and I loved the show and unfortunately if it had hit now, the, the story would be completely different. It was just the, the measurement and the conversation around how to define the success of these shows was based on an overnight rating and a C3, which is the rating point which I get paid by advertisers for these shows. And it was rough going um, in that way. We'd kill for it now, and I really regret it. And it was a tough, tough emotional one for me. Uh, you know, I would say every show you cancel takes a little bit of, out of you, you know, because you live with these shows. It, it, it could be years from pitch to, to pilot outline to drafts of pilots to finally deciding let's make it, casting it, filming it, sometimes doing some reshoots, then assembling a room and each individual story outline of an episode and, and draft and table read and rough cuts and, you know, and, and, it, it, you get invested, you know, you really can't help it. And so every cancellation hurts, without a doubt. His, not mine. Yeah. <laughs> my time. <laughs> Someone else is crying about yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one more question. Go ahead. In terms of picking the next theme, it, it, the process is Ryan Murphy tells us what he's going to do, <laughs> and then we say, great, that sounds yeah. awesome, because it, it, it is. Uh, um, and, and uh, you know, I think it's, I don't find it a challenge. I find it, it's an opportunity, and, you know, our marketing um, team loves, you know, they actually get some access to Ryan early on, even hearing things that we don't hear just to prepare for the marketing, but they love it. They get so ex they get so excited because they get to they don't have to do the same thing every year. So uh, to me, that model works really well. Look, I mean, it's vintage. Sometimes you got to burn down the sets. You know, that's always tough. But you know, you get to start over, and I think you know it gets everyone pretty excited. How important is marketing for all of you? How how early do you get them involved in shows that you care about? Can they make a difference in turning a show around? Um, I mean, I think it's really important to start the conversation with the audience really early. Um, you got to try and, you know, really trigger an interest early on so they can kind of then build upon it. Um, one of the things I think that's interesting for an on-demand platform is that we can we kind of continue to market season two as season one. Um, so we almost look at the first two seasons as the first season. So we look at it not just in the opening day mentality, but over the course of the two years, you know, we might spend more money to market season two than one because we know we can bring people into the funnel on season one. But it's, you know, as we talked about, there's so much stuff out there. You you really have to stand out, and, and and not just do the shows have to be creative, but the marketing campaigns have to be as creative as well. And you know, we're able to you know tap into Symphony, which is you know the all divisions of NBC Universal kind of working in concert, promoting an idea or show through from parks to USA to Comcast, it's just everywhere. And 
it can really make a big difference. And also just getting out there early with a piece of viral material. You look at what's happening with some of the Will and Grace stuff that we're putting out and 25 million people watching, you know, pieces and sharing. You see those trends. We obviously saw it with This Is Us and we learned a lot in that process. So I think that fan engagement early can be done if you put together something incredible and you see the match get struck and people are leaning in and sharing and getting excited. That's just a great sort of sign that you're galvanizing a passionate community. How how's the um, you know the internet has removed all these boundaries and it's shifted TV so much? How are your markets changing internationally, especially with NBC? I mean, how, how are your products changing as far as not just in Western culture, Europe, or the? It is. I mean, we just finished our international screenings. They did go very well because we happen to have owned some big pieces for them, like big, you know, action show like The Brave that's coming in on after The Voice, you know, big military, heroic, close-ended stories. But they still look for these close-ended, big, they love a big star, you know, they want action, intrigue, you know, those kind of shows. The The rest of it is we've, you know, found other ways, like our partnership with Hulu, to figure out how to let these shows live on that aren't totally, rel I mean, we don't own this is us, so that was an unusual deal, but um, someone in the room has had a hand in that. But um, but it uh, it's you know it's it's tough. You have to figure it another way. That all comes down to this sort of looking at the financial performance of these shows when you can't rely on a huge number coming from international. But we had shows like Blacklist and Blindspot that are you know Warner Brothers and Sony uh, owned shows that were you know, still tapping into a huge international number. And so the goal would be to, as part of our diverse portfolio, to have some shows like that coming out of our studio on NBC or other uh, networks. But it's that's a big changing market also. You know, in a perfect world, and what we like to have is, you know, our shows premiere globally around the world, you know, within the same day. Because I, I mean, I think because of the, the internet, it can be much a, a much even bigger conversation so and that's the goal. And, and it's been nice for us, you know, I mean, I've been at Showtime a long time. And, uh, and first it was building up Showtime in the United States. But in the last few years, Showtime has actually started to become an international brand. And we now have output deals in, in several countries, in, in several continents. Uh, and, uh, and they are actually now promoting Showtime as a brand on their networks and making exclusive output deals to uh, to be the, the 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 platform for our shows uh, around the world. Thanks. Um, I only heard that there was a dying banner announcement today saying. Uh, uh oh. <laughs> it was saying uh, Ulin P's uh, pickup pitch or something around those lines, and that made me think about how much like how serious did you guys take those. Yeah, um, well, we do listen to that. If we're going to kind of transfer a show from another network, it has to satisfy. There's a very specific set of circumstances, which is, as I mentioned, we have past seasons of shows that are premiering on other networks. So for instance, The Mindy Project. Mindy was on Fox. Um, every time a new season would premiere, we would get the old season. 
And we knew um, that our audience loved that show. So when Fox decided that you know, it wasn't viable for them to carry the show anymore, we knew quantifiably there was still a huge audience for it. So in a case like that, we knew it made sense um, to pr pick up Mindy, the same with Nashville. A show that's on another network where we don't really have the past seasons, it doesn't really make sense for us. I mean, I, res I respect the passion of it and I love to see it because I love that, you know, some show, you know, almost every show is somebody's favorite show and I think that's great. But in general, you know, there's often kind of brand connotations to that, that we'd rather just have our own shows. Craig, Carnival, right there. Oh, there. <laughs> 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 really? Right. We had a show um, at NBC called Timeless that in the meeting, uh, and we loved the show. This is back to that, how you evaluate success of these shows. We love the show, produced by Eric Kripke and Sean Ryan. Beautifully executed show. A show that we knew there was a large, passionate core audience. You know, we had the, the opportunity for it on the network was at 10. Was it probably too late for a show like that, that families might be wanted to watch together? Maybe. Um, but we, you know, it was a Sony-produced show. We did have an ownership stake in it. We just looked at it at the end of the day. That was one of the ones that just wasn't that clear, but we did make the decision, given the schedule and other opportunities that we wanted to give shows, that we had to let the show go. And it was tough. It was a hard decision to make. And the outcry from fans really did make us not sleep well that night. And the next day we came back in the scheduling room and we were just like, this doesn't sit right with me. Like, I feel like this show doesn't, it shouldn't go yet. It needs, an, it needs, an, it needs to keep going. So we quickly made that decision, called them and had them release that news. Everyone thought there was some conspiracy afoot. It, we were not that clever. We were busy doing other things. We had an upfront the next day. But it was it was such a joyful moment to be able to reach out to those guys who were commiserating with all their fans uh, online and be able to say the show's coming back. You guys figure out a fun way in the next twenty minutes to announce that to your to your fans. <laughs> and that those are fun days in a world where you know there's a lot of tough times. Tough, did she, tough did she days. get an airplane? And fly around. Did you get an airplane and fly around? There's one available. <laughs> so not that we, you know, oftentimes things are really not happening. They're deader than a doornail, and everybody's sending letters and doing things. But this just happened to be that perfect moment of kind of a regretful letting go of the show that then swayed it the other way. Well, unfortunately, we've got to end it there. Thank you so much to all of you. Thanks to all our presidents. Thank you. This season of The TV Campfire is produced by ATX Television Festival in collaboration with Anthony Luciani and AJ Myers. For more information on this year's festival, go to atxfestival.com or check out our social media at ATX Festival. <laughs>